Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right. Today is part two of our discussion, uh, which we have titled "The Complete Linguistic Case for the Out of India Theory." So we are going to be continuing where we left off from last time. So uh, as I welcome Srikanth sir, we'll jump right into the discussion. So sir, I'm going to put up the next slide immediately so that we can start uh, uh, explaining and going further. So I'll just put it up. So, sir, uh, I'll hand it over to you. We'll start from the evolution of numbers in India. Yeah. Now, uh, the thing is that if you examine, uh, you know, I had this hobby when I was in college. For I don't know why, but maybe it had a purpose. Uh, I want. I like to. I had the uh, uh, this uh, passion to learn numbers one to hundred in different languages of the world, in Asian, European, American, Indian. Uh, African, Australian, Aboriginal, whichever I could get, and learning them by heart. Also, of learning different alphabets. Now, I always thought that this was just a senseless uh, hobby of mine. But uh, re- uh, last year, you know, I decided since the notebooks in which I had written all these things were becoming old and yellowed, I thought let me put it all up on a blog. And while it was doing, uh, while I was putting them up on a blog, you know, I have put up that blog, India's unique place. in the world of numbers and numerals in which i have dealt with this topic through and through now uh, while i was doing that i suddenly discovered to my amazement that uh, you know they say mulla ki door masjid tak so somehow it led me back to the aryan invasion theory and i found that uh, uh, this numbers give a very solid proof for the out of india theory now india is the place where numbers seem to have evolved from the simplest to the most complex like uh, even today in the 21st century the andamanese language onge you we know onge because uh, tony joseph has spoken about how all indians right up till bacteria have the onge dna in them now this onge language has numbers only up to 3 uya inaga and irejida and above that any number is called ilake more than 3 so it is not 4 or something it is more than 3 now this is the probably the simplest uh, and most uh, pristine number system in the world uh, others other than this you find uh, such number systems only in australia among the australian aboriginals and uh, among the uh, patagonian indians that is patagonia is the southernmost part of south america which is very uh, deeply forested and uh, m- much of it i believe is still unexplored i don't know now but uh, this is the very sim- simplest of them all for example i can give an example of a, a australian aboriginal language called kamilaroi in that it has only three numbers 1 2 3 are mal bular and guliba but from this they evolve more numbers that is bular is 2 4 is bular bular 5 is bular guliba and 6 is guliba guliba so you see that although they have only 3 they have evolved further from that whereas the onge language has only 3 everything about that is just more than 3 so this is pro- probably the simplest form of numbers in the world and at the same time as i have given in my uh, article in the you find in ancient india texts which give numbers names for numbers right up to 10 raised to some in hundreds means one followed by more than 200 or 300 zeros so every zero like we have 10 100 1000 10000 lakh so 
there are names for every extra zero right up to 250 or 281 zeros. So that, that is, and that was in ancient India, whereas this, even in modern India, this is the case. So India, as you know, as I say, represents the world in cos, uh, microcosm, so to say, right from the simplest to the most complex. But uh, to come to the evolution of numbers, now the, uh, all over the world, there are two systems of numbers. They are the vigesimal numbers based on a base of 20 and the decimal numbers based on a base of 10. Now, the simplest, again, of the vigesimal numbers based on 20, again, you find it in India. That is the Turi language in East, uh, Eastern India, which is related, closely related to the Santali language. Now, this, uh, as you can see, it has numbers 1 to 5. Then 6 to 10 are based on this, like Miyati is 5. That is 1, 3. T means 5. So, Miyati means 1, 5. So then, uh, 151, 152, 153, 154 is the numbers for 6, 7, 8, 9. Then 10 is Baranti. Barya means 2. So Baranti means 2, two fives. And uh, Pia means 3. Piyati is 3 fives. And uh, then you have a number for 20, Lekachaba. So if you look at this carefully, you will see that only from these 5 numbers and then you find uh, you derive 10 and 15 and then 20 and beyond that it is a base of 20 lekachaba is 20 bar lekachaba is 40 pia lekachaba is 60 punya lekachaba is 80 and even 100 is miyati lekachaba that is 5 into 20 so this is the simplest form of vigesimal system which has developed in india and finally when you come to santali you find again Decimal systems are found in four stages, stage one, stage two, stage three, and stage four. The simplest, of course, is stage one. It is usually found in Chinese, uh, all the uh, Sino-Tibetan family, and also Vietnamese has been influenced by it, so they also have like that. And uh, also in some other language languages, uh, uh, minor languages of Africa, America, etc., maybe it must be found. But mainly it is in the Sino-Tibetan languages. Now in India, we have this Santali language in the first stage of decimal numbers. Where see, they have numbers for 1 to 10. Names for numbers from 1 to 10. After that, 20, 90, 20 to 90 are just 210, 310, 410, 510. Till 910. 910 is Aregel. And 100 is mid Sai. That is 100. Sai is 100. So all the other numbers are found, formed only from these. Like, um, um, you know, uh, I mean, if you see that now you come to the next, so I'll tell you, these are the four stages of the decimal system. Stage one has only 11 words. Those which are in stage one, they are words for one to 10 and a word for 100. In stage two, you find 19 words, words from one to 10, from 20 to 90 and means only the uh, 20, 30, 40, like that, and 100. So 19 words are there. In stage 3, you find 28 words. There are separate words for 1 to 20, and then 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, and 100. That comes to 28 words, if you see. And stage 4 has 100 words for all 1 to 100. You have to learn each of the 100 words separately for different reasons, as you will see. Now, 
in my article i have shown how the numeral system decimal system also comes in three stages the first stage is represented by egyptian the egyptian numeral system the second stage which is a higher development is represented by the chinese numeral system and the third and final and topmost stage is represented by the indian numeral system which is used all over the world today in fact it cannot you cannot go higher than that even the uh, system uh, used in the in computers i suppose you know in computers everything is represented just by 2 0 and 1 forming different uh, combinations uh, anyone uh, knowing computer programming will know this better than me now that the uh, computer system using only 0 and 1 is nothing but the stage 4 with a base of 2 instead of a base of 10 like the indian system has a base of 10 so they have num uh, symbols for 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 and 0 whereas computer uses has a base of 2 so it has only numbers uh, symbols for 1 and 0 now 1 and 0 is perfectly all right for computing but it can't be used in normal uh, by human beings in their normal working and the indian decimal system of uh, using 10 at stage 4 can be is the best for using uh, normal use but cannot be used in the computer but both represent this stage 4 now um this uh, remember it is uh, sorry i'm not uh, i made a mistake i'm not talking about stage 4 i'm talking about stage 3 of the numeral system that is chinese is stage 2 indian is stage 3 and egyptian was stage 1 now that actually represents a ever evolve evolution into a higher type of numeral system however this is not we are in this talk we are discussing not the numeral system but the number system so this does not mean that stage 2 is higher than stage 1 or stage 4 is higher than stage 3 these are just how chronologically these systems have developed in fact stage 4 is quite clumsy compared to stage 3 but uh, still this is how chronologically the number is developed from stage 1 to stage 2 stage 3 2 uh, to 3 and 3 to 4 now uh, as i said the above words that i have given indicates how much how many words are required to express numbers now let's start with stage 1 where there are only 11 words for 1 to uh, 1 to 10 and 100 this is found as i said in chinese or tibetan and uh, in india we have the santali language now note this santali language is very close to the turi language which i just showed you all uh, in fact they are very closely related languages and yet one represents the simplest vigesimal form of numbers and the other santali represents the very simplest decimal form so you see how in in india both this vigesimal and decimal systems are at their very first stage of evolution now in santali for example you have these 10 words mit bar pepon mare turui ai iral aran gal now you form the tens bus back adding 2 3 4 5 before gal that is 10 and other numbers are regularly formed like uh, you take the tens and the unit and between them you put the word khan khan is like and now for example if it was in english i uh, and uh, you can see what is on the screen but suppose it were in english you would only be having 11 words 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 10 and 
and 20 would be 210 if it was in this first stage and 21 would be 2101 and 11 would be 101 of course like uh, that word khan is used you know and could also be used like instead of saying 21 2101 you could have said 210 and 1 or 1 and 210 and in fact in old english that was how it was like you don't say 24 you say 4 and 20 as we know the poem 4 and 20 blackbirds baked in the pie and all the other Germanic languages related to English are still uh, use it like that. For example, in German, 24 would be Führerentwenzig. In uh, uh, Dutch, it would be Führerentwenty. So that's how English was, 4 and 20. So now it can be anyway. But the basic uh, words are only 11. And then they are combined to form the other words. Now we come to stage 2. Here there are 19 words in the this thing means along with 1 to 10 and 100 there are also separate words for 20 30 40 50 60 70 80 and 90 it is found in many languages of the world and the most typical just as chinese was the most typical of uh, stage one turkish is can be given turkish mongolian etc can be given as most typical of uh, these uh, altaic languages of stage two thus in turkish for example Numbers 1 to 10 are Bir Iki Uch Dort Besh Alta Yedi Sekis Dokus On. And 2030 is Kirk Eli Altmash Seksen Doksan use. Now you see, Yirmi is 20 and Iki is 2. There's no connection between Iki and Yirmi. They're completely different words. So they have words from 1 to 10, then they have tense words from 20 to 90, and there is a separate word for 100. Now you actually find this system in Tokharian, one of the Indo-European branches. Remember this, all the words in Tokharian are not known, the numbers. But we know the numbers 1 to 10 and uh, and a word for, uh, no, I don't know what is the word for 100 also, whether it is known. Ah, it is not recorded, sorry. So you have the numbers 1 to 10 and 11, uh, 20 is ikam. See, 2 is V and 20 is Ikem. So again, it shows that it is not uh, derived from the word for 2. It is a separate word. And we don't have the other tense numbers, that is 30, 40, 50. But on the basis of 20, it is obvious that there were separate words. Only they are not recorded. And 11 is just 10, 1. Shak, say. So there are no separate words for 11 to 19. There are only these 19 words, 1 to 10, 20 to 90, and 100. And all the other words are formed from that. For example, now again, if English was in this stage, so you can understand, there would have been 1 to 10 would have been, of course, the numbers that we know, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. And instead of 2, 10, 3, 10, 4, 10, 20, 30 would be uh, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100, as we know. But 11, 12 would not be 11, 12. They would be 10, 1, 10, 2. Just as you have 21, 22, like that. You would have 10, 1, 10, 2, 10, 3. So that is stage 3. There are no separate words for 11 to 19. Now we come to stage uh, 2. It is found, apart from Tokharian, it is found in spoken Sinhalese. 
you know sinhalese is a unique language always in my studies i have come to uh, i have noticed that the sinhalese language represents certain very archaic forms of indo european like it has the word watura for water which is found for example in english water in hittite watar and in sinhalese watura now this number system also it has pre preserved this second stage for example you see numbers 1 to 10 there are words 1 to 9 then 10 to 100 again there are different words now there is a modification that there are tense stems that is the word the haya is there but when you are combining it with a unit uh, unit you don't say dahaya eka you say daha eka visi eka not dahaya eka visa eka do you get it means suppose you want to say 21 you will not say visa eka you will, there is a separate stem which you have to put before visi eka and once so, so i just have a question that would be like a differentiating factor right so that we get uh, we understand that that's how they went about doing it yes yes because there uh, there are word they don't have words for 11 to 19 remember that is the basic factor of stage 2 they don't have words for 11 to 19 but there is this modification that um, uh, tense there are words and stems and that stem is used along with the units to form the words so thus uh, 11 is daha eka 21 is visi eka and 99 is anu navaya so anu is 90 and navaya is 10 um uh, navaya is 9 so 99 is anu navaya so you said you just have to know these numbers you don't have to know any other numbers in between you have to know 1 to 9 10 to 100 except that in 10 to 100 you have to know the words and stems separately so this is a small dilution of the pure system as you would perhaps find it in tokarian now next sanskrit sanskrit is also in stage 2 because you see eka dvi tri chatur pancha shat sapta ashta nava and then you find tense numbers now other numbers are always unit forms plus tense now uh, here the dilution is that sanskrit is a very inflectional language so when the words are getting joined some changes take place i have named them all in this i have given them but uh, this dilution is only because of the highly inflectional nature of sanskrit but there are no separate ways of forming 11 to 19 again in this also this is still stage 2 although it has uh, become more inflectional still there are uh, go to the next one for example next uh, slide you see sanskrit is stage 2 in spite of the inflection because see 11 is eka plus dasha ekadasha 12 is dwa plus dasha dwadasha 21 is eka plus vimshati ekavimshati 22 is dwa plus vimshati dwa plus vimshati dwavimshati so you see 11 to 19 are formed in exactly the same way as all the other sets 21 to 29 31 to 39 etc compare english words 11 is 10 plus 1 and what do you get 11 which has no connection with 10 and 1 see sanskrit ekadasham is eka plus dasha whereas in english 11 is not 10 plus 1 it is a completely different word 12 is not 10 plus 2 it is a different word and it's the same in hindi you will notice 11 is not 10 plus 1 or 1 plus 10 it's a totally different word now stage 2 differs from stage 
only in this respect that 1 to 19 in stage 3 either has independent words or else 1 to 19 are formed in a different way from 21 to 29, 31 to 39, etc. Now, note that stage 2 is found in Indo-European languages only in the oldest stages of Indo-European. That is, Tokharian we know is the second oldest branch to leave the homeland. And Sanskrit is the oldest recorded language. And we don't know Proto-Indo-European and Hittite, which are supposed to be represent older stages than Tokharian. So what we come end up with is that all the oldest languages, probably Proto-Indo-European and Hittite could be either in stage one or two. We don't know. Stage one like Santali or stage two like Tokharian, Sanskrit and spoken Sinhalese. So this is stage two. Now we come to stage three. See, it has 28 words. That it has, it has different words for 1 to 20. Then it has words for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90. And it has a word for 100. So English is an example. You see 1 to 10 are distinct words. 11 to 19 are distinct words. 10 to uh, 20 to 100. Each 10 is also a distinct word. But so this comes to 28 words. And all the other numbers are regularly formed. Tens plus unit. Whether you say 21 or you say 120 or 20 and 1 or 1 and 20 by adding another word in the middle like that Khan in Santali. Whatever it is, it, only from these 28 words by combining you form all the numbers. This is the stage 3. Now, now we come to stage 4. The modern Indo-Aryan languages of North India are the only languages in the whole world which belong to stage 4. In this stage, not only are there separate words for 1 to 19 and for uh, the 10s, 20, 30, 40 and 100, but each and every one of the other numbers in between also have to be separately learned. Since the 10s and unit words are all fused together arbitrarily and irregularly, different changes take place in the 10s forms and units now, I'm giving an example of Marathi. In my article, I have given Marathi, Hindi and Gujarati. Three examples. Now, anyone who knows Punjabi, Sindhi, Bengali, they can check their own languages and they'll see what I mean. Now, see, for a 1 to 9, you have these numbers. 11 to 19, you have these numbers which are distinct, just like in stage 2. And then you have 10s, 10 to 100, again distinct. This far, you will see it is exactly like stage 2. There are numbers 1 to 9, 11 to 19, and 10 to 100. Now, next. Next. Uh, yeah. Now you see how they are formed. Now, to form the middle uh, other forms, the 20s also don't, uh, word for 20 changes constantly. See, vis, vis remains constant. Tis remains constant. Chalis remains constant. But 50 becomes, in some words, it becomes pannas. In some, it becomes vanna. And in some it becomes panna, arbitrarily. The words for 60 is sat only in 59. Uh, ekon sat, unsat, as you would say in Hindi. But in everything else it's sashta. And 70 is sattar in 69, ekon sattar. But otherwise it is hattar, ekya hattar, bahattar, etc. In Aishi also it remains the same, nowa than now. But now we see the units forms. And there you will see what I mean. 
next sheet see unit forms the one changes in four ways ek ekke ekya and ekka now i have already given the 10 stems see i have made this stem so that you can understand but actually you will, you cannot uh, learn this language by you know learning these stems you have to learn each word separately but i have divided them into stems to show how they are formed now see in 21 3161 i've already given the 10 stems you have to add ek before that so ek vis ek tis ek sash and 41 is ekke 40 atiwane 91 is 81 80 and 81 and 5171 is ekka uh, one and ekka hatar now see in for two it's bavis bavan basasht and bahatar but it is batis be 40 and 82 and 91 three also see 23 but tehatar 43 and panchya before 75 85 95 see uh, uh, now all the audience may not be knowing marathi all the listeners but they know hindi so in my article i have given as i said marathi hindi and gujarati forms so if you examine that you will see how it changes for example in hindi it would be 25 35 and 5 then 45 but 55 again and पैंसठ और पासठ एंड पचहत्तर पचासी एंड पंचानवे पंचानवे नॉट पच ऑल्सो सो यू सी ईच ऑफ दीज नंबर इन द इंडो आरियन लैंग्वेजेस एंड आई रियलाइज दिस अनकॉन्शियस सबकॉन्शियसली वेन आई वॉज स्टडिंग नंबर आई फाउंड दैट आई कुड स्टडी नंबर लर्न बाय हार्ट नंबर वन टू हंड्रेड इन ऑल द लैंग्वेजेस ऑफ द वर्ल्ड इजिली Means it took some effort, but I could learn even in Red Indian language, uh, American Indian languages, uh, African languages, Australian Aboriginal, all the languages of Asia and Europe, all the languages of South India also I could learn. But the Indo-Aryan languages of Northern India I could not see. If you know the numbers one to hundred in any Indo-Aryan language, suppose you know in Hindi or Marathi or Gujarati or Punjabi, still. you will find it a big strain on your head to learn the numbers in another indo aryan language so you can imagine those who are not even indo aryan speaking how much it must be a problem for them to learn the numbers so you see this is not a development for the better it is a complication nevertheless chronologically it comes as the fourth stage now the same irregularity or inflectional complexity can be seen in the formation of the numbers between 21 and 99 in all the indo aryan languages of north india right up to kashmiri in the extreme north and right up to the pashto languages in the northwest which although it belongs to the iranian branch has been influenced by the indo aryan cerebral sounds and by this system i had told you when i was talking about the isoglosses how for example uh, neighboring languages get influenced so 
in this case pashto language has been influenced by indo aryan languages although it is an iranian language to the extent that it has cerebral sounds and it also has this complex system of forming numbers but it is found nowhere else outside the sphere of north india nowhere not even in spoken or literary sinhalese which is supposed to be an indo aryan language which went from the north this is in sharp contrast with all the other languages in the world other than the indo aryan languages of north india in all the other languages you have to either learn numbers from 1 to 10 or 1 to 19 and tens and i told you the three types you just have to learn a limited number of words and then you can combine them following some kind of a system but and a very by some regular process whereas in the indo aryan languages modern ones it has become extraordinarily complex now next now this second stage the second stage is found in the oldest indo european branches see it may be found in proto indo european we don't know or that may have been stage 1 it may have been found in hittite the oldest to leave again we don't know but certainly the second oldest tokharian and the oldest indo aryan language is sanskrit and archaic spoken sinhalese see spoken sinhalese is more archaic than written sinhalese also because written sinhalese has been influenced by buddhist texts and pali and uh, prakrits and all so it many cases it tried to imitate them whereas in many cases spoken sinhalese has retained the archaic characters characteristics of the original sinhalese language now the third stage so you see second stage was there in indo european in the oldest languages probably in proto indo european probably in hittite but certainly in tokharian sanskrit and spoken sinhalese now the third stage is found in all the other 10 branches that is if you leave out tokharian and hittite it is found in all the other indo european branches in india as, as well as in dravidian that is the other nine branches outside india and in indo aryan it is found in sinhalese literary sinhalese i told you spoken sinhalese is in stage 2 literary sinhalese is in stage 3 along with all the other nine branches which have moved out of india that is iranian armenian albanian greek and the five european branches germanic celtic baltic slavic and italic so all those nine branches have this are in stage 3 sinhalese literary sinhalese is in stage 3 so what does this prove that the modern indo aryan languages are in stage 4 and sanskrit was in stage 2 so there was a stage 3 in between which has not been recorded because see only sanskrit was used until the modern languages came to be used in literature so the middle languages have not been preserved properly if you see the prakrits you will see they are somewhat between the second and third stage now the fourth stage developed in the indo aryan languages remaining in north india but the dravidian languages were not affected so if you see the summary what do you notice the first stage is unrecorded it may have been there in proto indo european or hittite we don't know the second stage is found only in and to the north and south of india that is sanskrit in india spoken sinhalese to the south of india and tokharian to the north of india so 
it is the second stage is only centered around india the third stage is found everywhere else everywhere else means uh, in indo aryan only literary sinhalis and the fourth stage is found only in north india now what does this show this shows that where did these languages change uh, the previous one again uh, previous slide it's uh, not over now what does this show that the second and third stages originated in uh, took place in india the second stage is recorded because sanskrit has been recorded all the time the third stage is not recorded but it is proved by literary sinhalese which still retains that third stage and no one says that sinhalese is not indo aryan they claim that they went from north india there it is considered a part of indo aryan so that language is still retained the third stage and the fourth stage is found all over north india so what does this show this shows that the place where these numbers evolved through the four stages that area was india because we have the second stage and the fourth stage in india and we have the third stage in Sin uh, spoken sinhalese no sorry literary sinhalese spoken sinhalese is in stage 2 so all the three stages are found in the whole of india and sri lanka together and to the north tokharian which is immediately to the north whereas all the other nine branches outside this scheme they all are in the third stage and the dravidian languages are also in the third stage now what does this show see in the whole world there are many families of languages all over the world and sometimes you find language decimal systems of the second first second or third stage all over the world fourth stage is found only in north india modern indo aryan languages but the first three stages are found all over the world in stray languages here and there but in no family is it found throughout the family except dravidian and the nine branches of indo european languages which left india in our theory now in their theory they did not leave india but then how can they explain why only the dravidian languages uh literary sinhalese and the nine other branches all are in the third stage and the earlier stage is shown by sanskrit tokharian and spoken sinhalese and the later stage is so shown by the modern indo aryan languages i don't know if you have understood what uh, if you have any questions actually you can ask at this point no so so i actually had a question sir about the stage 3 thing so as you said stage 3 tends to have little information in terms of uh, as you we say we call it uh, the prakrits in india now yeah. so what wh what could be the possible reason of that like you said singhalese uh, has stage 3 content in india but then from a yeah. geographical location point of view how do we place singhalese in the entire thing because singhalese is uh spoken obviously all the way down in sri lanka and then you yeah. have the dravidian languages in between and then you have the northern indian indo european languages so purely yeah. from a geographical distribution of a languages point of view don't you think that would be problematic sir no because see the sinhalese language went from north india at a very old in the old period because that is why it retains in its spoken form it still retains stage 2 right like sanskrit and tokharian but now how did literary sinhalese come to stage 
which you find only outside india right from persian to all the nine bra uh, branches to the west europe and uh, west asia greek albanian armenian germanic baltic slavic italic celtic all those branches are in the third stage including iranian right up till iranian including armenian and uh, greek albanian and in indo aryan you find sanskrit in the second stage and modern indo aryan languages in the fourth stage so we can assume that yes there must have been the third stage in between and in case you are wondering where is that third stage it is found in sinhalese now why is it found in sinhalese because you will see there is a difference between spoken sinhalese and literary sinhalese now spoken sinhalese actually preserves the older archaic forms so it retains the stage 2 however uh literary sinhalese was based on the prakrits it was modeled on the prakrits buddhist texts pali and all that so uh, you find a lot of uh, prakrit words or sanskrit words through prakrit entering literary sinhalese all the sinhalese texts are based because they were buddhist texts and buddhist texts basically in india are prakrit texts so the it uh, if it has stage 3 what it means is that at the time when it was imitating the prakrit text it imitated a prakrit language which was in the third stage because where will they certainly they did not get this third stage from persian or english or uh, uh, latin or greek where did they get it from obviously from the prakrits now the prakrits are not as fully recorded and whatever even in the prakrits you see different different uh, like i have shown in my article also different forms of forming the words in which some of which they keep true to their natural form and in some of which they try to imitate sanskrit so because of this they don't show the real form which they had however literary sinhalese has preserved the real form of prakrits of that time because it never tried to imitate sanskrit so i It's had like one more follow up funny. question Yeah. I have one more follow-up question for this. So, where do you think was the development of the Sinhalese language done? Then, I mean, I I'm just thinking again from a purely geographical perspective. Yeah. That no, no, why would they not? Why would they not take A B C characteristics of let's say Dravidian languages because weren't they geographically more closer to them? Then, But, say maybe uh, Prakrits, which were of northern India. I'm just yeah. trying to ask that question. Yeah, Naturally, very simple that question. Because you see, the Prakrits, uh, as I said, they took the third stage from the Prakrits, and you're asking why they didn't take from Dravidian. Well, Dravidian languages are also in the third stage. So even if mm -hmm. they had taken from Dravidian, they would still have been taking the third stage. You see, so that may be the double factor. One, they were imitating the Prakrit of that time, which was in the third stage. and if any influence was there of dravidian that also represented the third stage so literary sinhalese which is a artificial language compared to spoken sinhalese that represents that third stage which is not found in the north because it has not been recorded but we know it was there because it is found everywhere outside india including in literary sinhalese that is whichever language is left a certain homeland now it can't be that all these languages left the steppes or they left anatolia and all of them retained the third stage sinhalese also along with the other nine branches but not like the other north indian branches it can't be 
so where is that place common place where all these branches took the third stage with them that can only be in north india because we know that all the branches outside india are in the third stage except the older ones like hittite and tokarian which are in the second and the uh, in indo aryan the only branch only language which left north india and therefore ex, uh, escaped the strong influence of sanskrit because you see the buddhist writers of sinhalese were busy imitating pali more than sanskrit you must understand sanskrit was not uh, so important for them as pali or the prakrits buddhist prakrit texts so they were not influenced in the way that even the actual prakrit languages when they were being written down they tried to imitate sanskrit but the sinhalese literary language retained the third stage okay so sir so we can continue with the presentation maybe if i have a few more yeah. questions i can ask them yeah, later yeah. on ha huh. now we come to the number 1 now uh, the uh, this is as incidentally i am pointing out the words for one in the various indo european branches offers one more clue to the location of the homeland now there is a major division in the words for one between two reconstructed proto indo european words oino and oiko now this um, oino is prominent in eight non indo iranian branches that is see the i have given them hittite german latin old irish latvian old church slavic greek and albanian and oiko is found in the two indo aryan branches only sanskrit ek kashmiri ak modern persian yak so this is the division where indo iranian has oiko and all the other branches practically or at least eight of the other branches have out of 12 branches eight have oino and two have uh, oiko now this oino oiko divide is found in two other language families burushaski spoken in the heart of the original homeland area it is spoken you know in uh, pak occupied kashmir which is at the very center of the central asia and uh, indian homeland area now that has two words hin and hik for one so again you see the oino oiko contrast in dravidian you find two groups the southern group has on like tamil onru malayalam onnu kannada ondu tulu onji etc and the central dravidian languages have ok like telugu ek um, oka okati oka parji okko naiki ok now this kind of a division of the word for one between na and ka is found only in indo iranian burushaski and dravidian now i am not giving this as a clinching argument like the what i gave about the earlier the four stages that is an absolutely clinching argument this is not but this is something to think about next now uh, continuing now uh, as i said eight branches have oino and two have oiko but there are two other words which also serve as the word for one in some other languages like uh, sem and oivo now in sanskrit sama means some like same english same sanskrit sama uh, greek homo now and uh, oivo which means you know ahameva mehi as you will say sankat eva it's a emphatic word like mehi or meets in marathi so that oivo now these two words are found in the other branches which don't have this oino oiko thing like hittite has c 
तो करिन है सास सैमेंट से ग्रीक है हैज हेस यू नो एस बिकम द एच इन ग्रीक एज द मैस्कुलिन फॉर्म एंड अवेस्टान हैज आइव पश्तो हैज यव बशगली हैज यव नाउ वी नो दैट इन द इरानियन ब्रांचेस यक ओइको इज आल्सो देयर लाइक इन मॉडर्न पर्शियन एटसेट्रा बट इन अवेस्टान यू फाइंड आइव व्हिच यू आल्सो फाइंड इन पश्तो एंड बशगली सो बोथ दीज वर्ड्स अल्टरनेट वर्ड्स मींस दोस languages which don't have oino and oiko they have sam and oivo and both are found in sanskrit as sama and evo now that leaves only two words for one in other languages greek has mia as the neuter word you know they have masculine one feminine one and neuter one so and the armenian word for one is me now compare it with the austric words for one santali mit mundari me कोरकुमियाडर्ड i have been uh, this is actually a talk on linguistic points but there is some other linguistic uh, before discussing the other linguistic evidence i will discuss some non linguistic evidence for the two first branches which you know are not as detailedly recorded we couldn't even get the numbers properly hitite and tokharin tokharin uh, thankfully it gave us the number for 11 and 20 because of which we came to know that it is in stage 2 just these two numbers gave us the clue that it is in stage 2 like sanskrit and spoken sinhalese but a uh, hittite and a uh, proto indo european of course is just a artificial construct but uh, hittite has not given us uh, beyond the first five or six numbers which occur in certain occasions we don't know the hittite numbers also properly but uh, now so we will discuss some non linguistic evidence only in respect of these two branches now first is that indian historical tradition remembers two tribes or kingdoms in central asia exactly located in the tokharian and hittite areas as per our case now as i have pointed out these two branches went into central asia hittite settled on the west and tokharian settled on the east now for tokharian we have proof because even in its final historical stages when it was recorded it was still in that same place it had not shifted from there except further into sinkiang area of neighboring china etc so it was still in the east of central asia but hittite when it first came into historical records had already moved into anatolia so hittite being in central asia is part of a theory but it is not the recorded fact whereas tokharian being in central asia is a recorded fact throughout its history now of these the eastern uttar kuru are clearly the tokharians because in all the ancient texts they are called tigru toikhulu tohulu etc now uttar kuru why will they be called uttar kuru it's an obvious sanskritization of the native name of the tokharians preserving as closely as possible what henning calls see henning tells us that all the names for the tokharians preserve the consonantal skeleton dental plus velar per plus r and the old u consonant u sonant vowel that is which appears in every specimen of the name by that rule uttarakuru is also clearly a 
this thing of the tokharians and the puranas describe them in as being in the very same area where the tokharians are known so this is a recorded evidence of the presence of at least the tokharians in central asia now the text record uttara kuru to the east and uttara madra to the west now we don't have a, a linguistic evidence of any kind of but uh, i have speculated that uttara madra were the hittites now the, just like we can see uttara kuru means tokru we can't see similar evidence for the hittites so that is a guess now why were they called like that because in the south that is below the central asian line within the indian subcontinent the kurus were to the east during the puranic period and the madras were to the west so when they called the eastern group uttara kuru they automatically called the western group uttara madra that is the way i put it now second now there is evidence of comparative mythology now indra is a god who is basically found only in indo aryan he is not found in any of the other branches of europe neither the um, five european branches nor in uh, greek armenian or albanian and he is found in the uh, avesta only as a demon because he is a vedic god he has been demonized in the avesta as a demon indra so he is obviously not a iranian god he even that emphasizes that he was a purely indo aryan vedic god so he is in all the other branches he is totally missing but his name is found in the hittite mythology as inar or inara now hittite remembers the name in a garbled manner now indra's main feat and the main feat of all the thunder gods if you see the comparative mythology studies including in my own books the main feat of the thunder god is the killing of the great serpent who prevents rainfall everywhere in greek mythology zeus kills the great serpent um in uh, um teutonic that is germanic mythology also thor who is the thunder god kills the great serpent and in uh, vedic also uh, mythology indra kills the great serpent vritra who is preventing the rainfall now what is the main feat of indra inar or inara that is also the killing of the great serpent who interferes with the activities of the weather god so inar inara is not himself or herself the weather god but for the weather god inar or inara kills the great serpent who interferes with the weather that is obviously the rain so the name is not a pan indian in indo european name but a purely vedic kuru one now it could only have been borrowed by hittite from indo aryan in a primeval period when hittite in central asia was close to the cultural sphere of the vedic area otherwise where would the hittites get this myth from not in anatolia obviously they must have got it when they were in central asia another thing is uh, that you know uh, vidzel has classified indra as a non indo european name he does this because it is not found in any other mythology so he says it is not a indo european name it is borrowed from central asia by the uh, indo uh, indo aryans as they were before they entered india it is a bactria margiana word now it is not we know it comes from the word hindu which means drop so it is a name of the rain god but still he associates it with central asia so there is the proof that hittite was in central asia because that's where they got the word 
Now, most amazing is that there, there is actually racial evidence. Now, as I've always pointed out, this is not a racial issue. It is a linguistic issue. However, in the case of Hittite, we have an amazing piece of racial evidence. You know, Hittites were known since ancient time because they are recorded in the Bible. Because they are one of the people whom the Jews fought and, uh, uh, in the Old Testament. So they are known. They are recorded in all the other, uh, uh, in Egyptian texts also they are recorded. But no one knew what their language was. In the Bible, even 200, 300 years ago, there are references to Hittites in the translations. But no one knew that the Hittites were actually speaking an Indo-European language. But in the last century, in the 20th century, in the very beginning, they got a whole uh, heap of Hittite manuscripts and documents. And after they studied it, they understood that this was also an Indo-European language, although it had become very much transformed in different ways. And in some ways, it is supposed to have retained very original features like laryngeal sounds, which are not found in any other language. They, uh, but by some linguistic process, they claim that the other languages show that there were laryngeal sounds in the original Proto-Indo-European language, which have been retained only by Hittite. And this theory was formed even before the Hittite language was discovered to be Indo-European. They said that there must have been laryngeal sounds. And when they found Hittite, they found that laryngeal sounds are actually uh, recorded there. When I spoke of the isoglasses last time, I pointed out that when Hittite went into Central Asia, all the other 11 branches developed separately from Hittite. And all of them lost the laryngeal sounds while Hittite retained the laryngeal sounds of Proto-Indo-European. So it fits in into the Indian homeland theory, certainly. Now, what happened was that at the beginning of the last century, when they discovered that the Hittites were Indo-European, they were you know, stunned because they knew the Hittites. They were in a list of people whom the Jews are supposed to have fought and uh, destroyed. But no one knew that they were different from the other West Asians, that they were Indo-Europeans. But after it was discovered, people became more interested in the Hittites. And uh, this article appearing in 1999 in uh, the uh, Journal of the American Oriental Society, this Carnoy makes the observation that the inscriptions show that they spoke an Indo-European language, but their physical type is clearly Mongoloid, both on their own sculptures and on Egyptian monuments. Wherever the Hittites are de uh, depicted, they are shown having high cheekbones and retreating foreheads. Different from the other people of West Asia, they are Mongoloid. Like, you know, people of Eastern Asia and uh, Chinese and Mongols and others. Now, according to the JewishEncyclopedia.com, you can see, check it on Google. They give it like this. See, the Hittites, as shown both on their own and on Egyptian monuments, were clearly Mongoloid in type. They were short and stout, prognathous, and had rather receding foreheads. The cheekbones were high. The nose was large and straight, forming almost a line with the forehead. You know, when they show them sideways, the nose was not jutting out. It was almost forming a line with the forehead, showing it was flat. And the upper lip protruded. Further, they were yellow in color. You know, for some reason, Chinese are always depicted as yellow skin. I don't know why, actually. But uh, I don't think they actually have yellow skin. But maybe in some context, people thought of it like that. Now, these are also depicted as yellow in color, with black hair and eyes, and beardless. I don't know if you have seen, but Chinese usually don't have beards except a thin string beard in most of the this thing. That is the typical Chinese type of beard. 
and also they wore according to the egyptian paintings they wore the hair in pigtails which is what the chinese and the mongoloid people of uh, central asia also did so now hittites if they are roisially they came from central east obviously they came from central asia so this is the proof for the indian homeland theory they couldn't have come from the steppes because there there were no mongoloid featured people there now we again come back to linguistics the question of loan words now johanna nichols nichols she she uh, wrote this in 1997 and again in 1999 she wrote articles she carried out a two volume along with a group of others i think she carried out a very detailed study of loan words in the ancient european languages in the indo european languages mainly the five european branches and she showed that all the, um the, uh, by drawing by using some kind of linguistic techniques which i cannot tell you what they are because i don't know but she used those standard linguistic techniques and showed how those words could have entered the indo european languages and they she drew certain uh, trajectories now don't ask me to explain what that is just see what she said now she says the westward the languages show that they went from the east to the west and they got all these words from west asia the semitic languages through the caucasian languages that is they were in the north of the caucasus they moved from from the north from east to west across the north of the caucasus and through the caucasus languages of the caucasian area you know georgian and other such there is a caucasian language family there of which georgian you know the georgian soviet socialist republic the language of that uh, republic is georgian which is the most yeah. important of the caucasian languages now through mm. those languages these uh, semitic words and west asian words are supposed to have entered the european branches as they moved from east to west and now see what she says her detailed linguistic study she points that several kinds of evidence for the proto indo european locus what is the locus the spot from where the proto indo europeans spread out and what does she say several kinds of evidence now this main one i am discussing at the moment is this ancient loan words but others are you know the structure of the family tree the accumulation of genetic diversity as the western periphery of the range the location of tokharian and its implications for early dialect geography the early attestation of anatolia in asia minor and the geography of the center uh, kentum satem split all point in the same direction they all point towards bactria sogdiana that is central asia she says that all her linguistic studies show that these languages were passing from this central asia to europe when all these changes took place all these changes indicate all these linguistic factors indicate that movement from central asia towards europe now a, a very interesting thing i must tell you about this that this was written in 1997 and uh, uh, again in 1999 and she has done it in very great detail and you know after i quoted it in my book in 2000 and again quoted it in my book in 2008 and everyone else started quoting this 
all the uh, you know the aryan invasion theory uh, scholars the objective and uh, impartial scholars they suddenly started feeling uh, uneasy so she was targeted by all of them they said how can you write this kind of thing you are helping the uh, hindu chauvinists to uh, write all their nonsense and all that so if you look on academia.edu her two articles are there you check them she gives those two articles as they are as i have quoted them but at the beginning she gives a disclaimer i don't know how many of you are aware of the stalin era confessions you know people were brought before the public and shown on pub, in public display they confess yes i have betrayed the country i have worked against the this thing so i deserve to be punished and then they used to be executed so here she comes up and she she gives the disclaimer saying that uh, she does not want to disclaim the deep study that she has undertaken at the same time she wants to placate all the other scholars who are attacking her so she writes you re- you can read it yourself on academia.edu in her uh, artic- these two articles she says i stand by everything that i have written here but i must uh, i will take back one thing that that although this locus was in central asia actually the origin was in the steppes so that what she is saying is that from the steppes they came to central asia and though there is no proof for this movement and then there is, from central asia they went to europe there is proof for that movement which she has uncovered but that earlier thing she is saying just to placate them and today only someone sent me a um, mail in which she gave one more quotation of hers even later in which she was probably told that her uh, you know what disclaimer she made was not sufficient because i quoted that disclaimer in my earlier blog also and pointed out how how much there is this stalin era uh, you know uh, compul- sort of uh, compulsion being made on scholars to modify what they are writing so she has given even more clearly that yes i admit i was wrong and actually the center origin was in the steps but she provide no proof for that so you see this is the kind of uh, scholarship that we have to face when we are studying this linguistics now what is Nico, uh, what now we here we are concerned only with the loan words so she examines semitic loan words which entered the european branches through the caucasus along with a other large number of other linguistic criteria which we will not discuss here and she locates the locus of the indo european spread in central asia now a chinese influence on the european branches is dealt with by a chinese scholar chang who says that indo europeans had coexisted for thousands of years in central asia before they emigrated into europe and he in his paper in 1988 he has given a long number a uh, list of words which he claims especially in german and some in celtic also i think which were borrowed from ancient uh, a very ancient chinese now gankrelitz and ivanov in their acclaimed magnum opus they they write that this uh, separation of the indo european there is a section in their book it is titled the separation of the ancient european dialects that is these same five european branches from proto indo european and the migration of indo european tribes across central asia and he, then they give uh, how these european branches have borrowings from the yenisean and altaic languages so here you have loan words from semitic from chinese 
from the nsan and from altaic languages into the european branches which they could only have got in central asia a large array of scholars have given this now note this gamkaralizi and ivano ivano are proponents of a homeland in anatolia that is turkey you can look in their book they show a map they show these five european branches coming from turkey all the way eastwards into central asia just like uh, this uh, nicols is now claiming that it was in the steps but they came to central asia and then again went west so that is uh, that actually they show a map of the european branches coming into central asia and then going westwards just to account for these central asian loanwords so you see all these loanwords do not fit into the steppe homeland theory they fit into the out of india theory now linguistic evidence of other families i have given these loan words that is also other families but now the geographical location of the original homeland is also sought to be located with reference to features or words found in proto indo european as well as in some other proto language or family showing that they were together in the formative stage the proto indo european stage now the only families which we will discuss here are dravidian semitic austronesian and uralic so first dravidian next now see dravidian we already saw the evidence showing that after the exit of the two early branches hittite and tocharian all the other 10 branches of indo european and the dravidian languages were jointly in the third stage of decimal numbers no other family in the world of languages is entirely in the third stage but these 10 branches of indo european and the dravidian languages are the only families which are in the third stage of decimal numbers after which one indo aryan language and the other nine branches migrated out of north india now except for stray other languages no other entire language family in the world is in stage 3 so this development could only have taken place in india but the thing is the dravidian languages developed south of the vindhyas and the indo european languages north and there was little active interaction among the period people till the period of the new rigveda you know in my earlier, earlier articles i have shown how the new rigveda contains certain dravidian words brought in by rishis who actually originated in south india but one feature mm-hmm. must be next which other linguists have also no, uh, noted but which they sweep under the carpet now this feature is something which no linguist has ever been able to satisfactorily explain and it is therefore generally hushed up in aryan invasion theory analysis this is the reflexive personal pronoun for self tan found in dravidian as well as in sanskrit and avestan now it was found only in sanskrit they could have said that oh sanskrit borrowed it from the dravidian languages after they came to india but avestan according to them avestan never entered india how did borrow this word and this word now any uh, among my listeners those who are south indians will know what i mean like there is that personal pronoun tan and in kannada tanu so tanna means his what we would say in marathi swathacha or khud ka or uh, khud apna so that is the uh, personal pronoun tan or tan in sanskrit it is found in the rigveda as tanu and it is also found in the avesta which has no explanation in any aryan invasion theory scenario 
unless you say that oh dravidian must have been spoken also in central asia so you have to you know keep on inventing hypothetical situations to explain it but if this original dravidian word has been influenced not only vedic but also avestan this certainly shows some kind of uh, contact in the primitive period when avestan was also inside india whatever explanation you give it has to be part of an oit scenario it does no explanation in any aryan invasion theory scenario now semitic now uh, it is a regular argument that uh, indo european semitic connections uh, and people keep trying to search for such words now as i have already shown johanna nichols analyzed these words and showed that they entered the indo european branches as they were migrating from east to west so they are found in the european branches or they may be found in hittite or they may be found in the other branches which moved through west asia actually but none of them are found in indo aryan and iranian remember this now mallory and adams say that many of these words are borrowed at a later stage like uh, you know we use arabic words also so our languages have not come from arabic in hindi urdu we use uh, in hindi we use so many arabic words so uh, duniya we will say or mohabbat or something like that these are arabic words but uh, we use them but our languages not come from arabic we have been influenced by that english uses so many latin greek french words so what has come from influence is different from what has been inherited now uh, so noting that mallory and adams reduce the list of words to only four the words are madhu honey taurus wild bull septum seven and wine wine we have already examined the word for wine if you remember when i was telling about the uh, isoglosses i pointed out that the word wine is found only in the branches to the west of the semitic area to the northwest of the semitic area but not to the east that it is not found in indo aryan iranian and tokharian but the word wine is found in all the other nine branches to the west so this shows that this word was borrowed by indo european from semitic only by the nine branches which moved across the semitic area north and south towards the west so that in fact proves that the originally they were in the east because the eastern branches have not got this word wine similarly the second word for wild bull or aurochs now this is definitely a proto semitic word because it is found in all the major semitic languages akkadian ugaritic hebrew syriac arabic south arabic etc in indo european again it is found in all the european languages all that is the uh, five european branches italic celtic germanic baltic and slavic it is also found in albanian and greek which are in southern europe but which were the last branches they also passed through the semitic areas now the hittite word for bull is not known and armenian has borrowed a caucasian word sul for bull so we don't know whether armenian borrowed this word or not at any point of time so as in the case of wine this semitic loan is missing only in the three eastern branches indo-aryan iranian and tokharian just like the word for wine this word is also missing only in the three eastern branches it is found in all the western branches so again it does not show that proto semitic 
influence Proto-Indo-European. It shows that Proto-Semitic or Semitic influenced the nine branches which were moving to the west, not the three eastern branches which remained in the east. Next, the word for honey. Now, this uh, they claim a Semitic origin for the word Madhu. Now, this is an act of faith rather than of logic. For example, why will this? They claim that this is derived from a, a Semitic word for sweet. They claim the Proto-Indo-European word for honey is derived from the Semitic word for sweet, but. Semitic does not use that word sweet for honey and Indo-European does not use that word honey for sweet except as from derived from the word honey like Madhura and so it is not the original word is honey from which they derive sweet. Now this word and Indo-European has a different word for sweet that is Proto-Indo-European Swat, Sanskrit Swadu, Greek Hedu, English Sweet and Tokharian Swat. So this speculative claim assumes that Proto-Indo-European reached across the Caucasus, borrowed the Semitic word for sweet rather than the word for honey, but they used it instead for honey. And actually, as I said, wherever you see, you see in Sanskrit from Madhu, you get Madhura, from honey, you get sweet. In Hittite, from Milit, honey, you get Militus. In Old Irish, from Mil, honey, you get Milis. And even Old English, from Milith you get Milis. So everywhere, this word for sweet is derived from the word for honey. Because honey is sweet. So that quality is made into a, a, a adjective sweet. And these people claim that it is borrowed from the Druid, uh, Semitic word for sweet. Now, Indo-European languages have uh, two words for honey. From Medhu and Melith. Now, these people are claiming that Medhu is a Semitic loan, like Gamkarali claims. Medhu is a Semitic loan, but Melith is the original word. Now, look at what the facts show. The word Medhu is totally missing in four of the five branches which are actually inside the sphere of the Semitic languages. That is Hittite, Armenian, Albanian, Italic, and the fifth Greek. As, uh, so these branches do not use, four of these branches do not use the word Medhu at all. It is totally missing in those four branches. So if that word Medhu was borrowed from Semitic languages by Proto-Indo-European, why is it that only the branches, uh, the previous, it's not over, that uh, previous uh, slide. So, uh, the actual branches which are in the sphere of the pro, uh, Semitic languages don't use this word, which they claim is a Semitic word. And uh, the three branches to the east, not only have Medhu for honey, but uh, and the word Melith is totally missing, which they claim is the original word. So also Baltic and Slavic, which were the eastern rear guard of the European branches, well to the north of the Semitic area. So again, you see that the eastern branches have the word Medhu. So that again shows a difference because the actual branches in the Semitic area don't have the word for Medhu. Now, why do they insist that this word Medhu is borrowed from Semitic? Let us see. Now, next. See, now linguistically, all the evidence shows that the word Medhu is totally unconnected with Semitic. So, what is the point? Why do they insist? It is because 
in the mediterranean area the transition from primitive beekeeping to the more evolved types first takes place in the first uh, you know uh, in older all over the world you find people use honey bees are in the wild they go into the jungles they take uh, honey from the beehives and they use it but it is only in the mediterranean area that it developed into an organized industry and uh, the domestic apiculture was started like agriculture where bees were kept in hives in a enclosed place and honey was derived from it they were kept in manufactured hives not the non normal places and it became a organized industry now because of this they claim that honey originated in the mediterranean area and since honey is found in all the indo european languages it means that they were influenced by the mediterranean areas and to prove this they add this see parpola writes that apis mellifera the bee which is usually used in this api, uh, apiculture apiaries you know in organized uh, honey uh, culture this is the species of bee which is used apis mellifera it is native to the region africa arabia and the near east up to iran and also in europe but it is not found anywhere to the east that is it is not native to india or central asia so that again they show that they claim shows that we got the honey from because it is the west asian honey bee and the west asian honey culture but uh, now let us check this see the assumption is that beekeeping and the word for bee are proto indo european in view of the word for honey and the developed beekeeping economy among the indo europeans and the religious significance of the bee that is what they claim because of the importance of honey in if you read the rigveda also honey is very important in it it is important in all the indo european cultures so the conclusion is that it must be when they were passing they got this honey culture from west asia now this is not drawn from the facts but from the assumption that there was a developed beekeeping economy among the indo europeans which is what this gamtralis states now let us see what is the what are the actual facts next now the first fact is that proto indo european beekeeping was not of the developed beekeeping type it was of the primitive beekeeping type because there is a common word for honey but there is no common word for bee no common word for beehive no common word for bee beeswax or for any aspect of beekeeping or apiculture and this has been noted by most linguists that there is a word for honey but nowhere does it show that there was an organized beekeeping apiculture uh, culture among the indo europeans then now you note that uh, in the rigveda also honey is from right from the oldest books honey is referred to everywhere but there is there are very few references to bees and none whatsoever to beehives beeswax or anything which would indicate the existence of any evolved forms of beekeeping or apiculture so the linguistic evidence shows that it was not the organized beekeeping of west asia but the primitive beekeeping of earlier times which is there among the proto indo europeans next then again they uh, there is no proof 
that the honey used by the Vedic people was the honey from Apis mellifera. Because after saying that it was, Parpola discreetly tells us that there are other species of honey bees in the East. And the largest honey bees in the world are the species of Apis dorsata found in India and further East. That is, it is not this Apis mellifera, which is the biggest one. It is the one which has been cultivated in apiculture. But in the wild, there are other larger honeybees found in India and further east and they are the largest. Now these eastern honeybees have been a source of honey in India from ancient times. Even if you go in any of the tribal areas of India, you will see that this uh, primitive honey culture is still extant even today. In uh, any Maharashtrian will know the film Jaitre Jait. Uh, which became very famous, which was all about the, uh, I think, the tribals of uh, uh, Maharashtra, where beekeeping uh, is carried on in a big scale. Now, it is found even in the remotest tribal areas. And ancient Mesolithic rock paintings dating 8000 to 6000 BC are found in Bhimbetka and Pachmadi, which depict honey gathering. I've given the full this thing. What is shown in those paintings? And these rock paintings, they show people climbing up on ladders from trees and gathering honey from the wild. This is found as deep inside as in Madhya Pradesh, nothing to do with West Asian apiaries. And these rock paintings represent the oldest depiction of honey gathering in the whole of Asia. So the biggest honeybees are found in India. The oldest rock painting showing honey gathering is found in India. And the linguistic evidence shows that it was primitive beekeeping which was there in the Proto-Indo-European and Vedic world, not the apiculture of West Asia. Next. Um, yeah, so that is all this shows that this what they are claiming, in no way is it uh, possible that the word Medhu or the honey, honey culture was borrowed by the Proto-Indo-Europeans from the Semitic languages. Now four, the word for the number seven. Now the fourth word they give is the word on, they claim that the Proto-Indo-European word Septum and Proto-Semitic Proto Sabatum. So Proto-Indo-European has borrowed this word for seven from Semitic. Now why when we see that the Proto-Indo-European languages have a very highly developed uh, number system at every stage. Now, why will they borrow the word for seven from Semitic? Why not the other words one to six or the other uh, words after that? So they use this one stray numeral to claim that uh, there were Proto-Indo-European and Proto-Semitic connections. Now, this is too pedestrian to be discussed. But let us see uh, another example of Proto-Austronesian. Now, uh, uh, after the Semitic, as I said, Proto-Austronation is the third language I'm going to discuss. There is a clear resemblance in the very first four numerals, one, two, three, four, in Proto-Indo-European and Proto-Austronation. And uh, it's not that Proto-Austronation, what is Austronation? It is the languages of Malaysia, Indonesia, and the, all the Pacific Islands, right up till uh, the uh, Maori language of New Zealand and the Malagasy language of Madagascar near Africa. Means all the islands of all the oceans, but starting with Malaysia and Indonesia, they are all Austronesian languages. Now, 
Chatterjee, who is supposed to be one of, have been one of the most eminent linguists, he says that the Austric speech, as the ultimate source of both the Austroasiatic and Austronesian branches, could very well have been characterized within India. So here is the old uh, he, the eminent linguist who is a very strong supporter of the Aryan invasion theory. He points out that Austronesian language is the ultimate origin could have been in India. Now, there is a paper by a linguist called Isidore Den in 1966 and published in 1970. He points out that there are very fundamental words common to the Proto-Indo-European, not to one branch or two branches, but to the all the branches, that is Proto-Indo-European and Proto-Austronesian which includes such basic words as the first four numerals, many of the personal pronouns and the words for water and land, very basic words. And he points out that if, if we do even deeper study, we could increase the number of words. Now, DN is, he, this writer is by no way a supporter of OIT because he writes, although he presents this linguistic evidence, he's afraid to draw any conclusions from it because he claims that See, the original Indo-European may have been spoken in Europe and the original protein, uh, this thing may have been spoken far to the east. So, I don't know why this is so, but this is the fact. These are the facts. And he gives these words. Now, let's see the next thing. So, see what it is. See, the very first four numerals in Proto-Indo-European and Proto-Austronation, you see them. Sem and Esa, Dovar, Dwai and Deva. Three and Telu, Kwetor and Pati, Epati. Now, see, compare Sas, Tokharian Sas, say, with Malay Sa, Satu, or Romanian Patru, with and Welsh Pedwar for four, with Malay Epat, and Malay Dua and Tiga. I don't think any of us who knows any Indian language, if you are asked, what can the what numbers must the Malay words Dua and Tiga represent? I think without any hesitation, all of us will say it must be two and three. That's how obvious it is. Now, personal pronouns, the personal pronouns, I, we, you, he, she, it, and demonstrative this or he, he gives these words. And the words for land and water, where, and uh, darat, like Sanskrit, vari and dhara, for example, even Latin terra for land. So you see, I'm not claiming, again, let me make this clear. I'm not going to argue that there is this, what he says about Proto-Indo-European uh, and Proto-Austrian is correct. But I'm saying that if people can push such a ridiculous comparison of Pro Semitic 7 and Proto-Indo-European 7, very far-fetched, then why not? What is wrong with this Proto-Austronesian uh, uh, where the first four words, the very first four number words are connected. So if you are rejecting this and accepting that, it certainly shows, uh, it doesn't show uh, proper or impartial study. Now, finally, we come to the last one, Uralic. Now, this is a very important, uh, this thing, Uralic means the Finnish and Hungarian languages of Europe. They are not Indo-European languages. They belong to a group called uh, um, Finno-Ugrian, which belong to a bigger group called Uralic, which includes certain other uh, languages, uh, more primitive languages to the east. These two are more developed languages. 
Finnish and Hungarian. There's also Estonian, which is very close to Finnish. Now, these languages contain Indo-Iranian words. Notice, not just Indo-European words, they contain Indo-Iranian specific words. And not just one stray word, you know, not like saying septum and sabtum, seven is, are connected. These, these words, like Kuzmina has pointed out, these words are all uh, from the very important cultural spheres, that is economic production, social relations, and religious beliefs. So there are the words for sheep, ram, bactin, camel, stallion, colt, piglet, calf, pastoral processes and products. See a whole lot of them. Farming, tools, metal, and uh, some tools, uh, uh, things like ladder, and uh, many others, like even the words Arya and uh, the word Dasa, and the word Asura, which is so important in Indo-Iranian, in the Rigveda and Avesta, they are also found in Finnish and Ugrian. And uh, uh, I won't go through all this. This is accepted by everyone. Now, next, what does this show? This shows that there were close relations between Uralic and Indo-Iranian. And this is used as evidence that the Indo-Iranians were in contact with the Finno-Ugric people in Eastern Europe before they migrated to India and Iran. That is what the argument is being made about these uh, similarities by all the linguists. And they have been doing it from the beginning with no one challenging them. Now, first point you have to notice that all these massive and basic borrowings are only in one direction. All these words, there's a big mass of words covering every cultural sphere. And all these words are only in one direction from Indo-Iranian to Finno-Ugrian. There is not a single accepted example by any linguist of a borrowing in the opposite direction. Now, in every single historical case, one-way borrowing only takes place in one situation. Only in one situation. Otherwise, always there is two-way borrowing. You see, English came to India. It went all over the world. All over the world, languages borrowed from English. English borrowed from all those languages. Now, Sanskrit has borrowed from Dravidian languages. Dravidian has borrowed from Sanskrit. And this is the case everywhere, all over the world, without exception. Now, which is this one case, one type of uh, case in which there is only one way borrowing? This happens when a language moves to another area. Some speakers of a language move to another area and stay there for a long time. After some time, they merge into the local people. Now, what happens is that when they are there, they borrow words from the local languages. The local language people borrow their words. But the words don't come back to the original area. Remember this. For example, Southeast Asian languages have borrowed Sanskrit words. All the Southeast Asian languages, Thai, Cambodian, Malaysian, you look at them, there are so many Sanskrit words borrowed in them. I think everyone knows about how the Indonesian airlines is also called Garuda Airlines. You know? That is a cultural thing. But languages, the words are also borrowed in a big proportion. But no, Sanskrit has not borrowed any words from the Southeast Asian languages. Why is that? Similarly, Indian languages have borrowed Arabic Persian words. All the Indian languages, why? But Arabic Persian have not borrowed Indian words. Unless you go back into the past and show this thing. But in the uh, last uh, few hundred years, 
Arabic Persian have not really borrowed Indian words, but Indian languages have borrowed plenty of Arabic Persian words. So what is this circumstance? This circumstance takes place when a language from area one moves to area B. So both the uh, both the language uh, people borrow from each other, but the language in lang area A does not borrow the words like. Arabs and Persians have not borrowed Indian words. Sanskrit has not borrowed Southeast Asian words. But the Arabs and Persians who came and settled down in India, they borrowed Indian words into their Arabic speech and the Indians borrowed their words. Similarly, the Indians who, Sanskrit speaking Indians who went into West Asia and formed, for example, the um, uh, uh, this uh, temples of uh, uh, Cambodia, you know the uh, there also uh, the uh, of Angkor Wat, the very famous temples. You know that ruling dynasty. They yeah. introduced Sanskrit words into the local languages, and their language also must have borrowed many words from the local languages. But none of those words have come back. So what does this show for this connection between Indo-Iranian and uh, Finno-Ugric? It shows that some people from South Asia went through Central Asia into Eastern Europe and after some time they merged into the local population. But the Finno-Ugric people borrowed words from them and they borrowed words from the Finno-Ugric people but those words did not come back into India. Now you know English borrowed from India and then those English writers went back to England like Rudyard Kipling or uh, even uh, William Makepeace Thackeray in his books, you see so many Indian words are used. And they wrote literature in England, borrowing Indian words. But people, uh, this did not happen in the case of Arabs coming to India, Sanskrit people going to Southeast Asia, or Indo-Iranian people going to Eastern Europe. So they did not bring back words back into their homeland. And that is the only thing that this shows. And the second proof of this is, See what Kuzmina is saying. The name and cult of the Bactrian camel were borrowed by the Finno-Ugric speakers from the Indo-Iranians in ancient times. So what does this show? That the Indo-Iranians went from Bactria, Central Asia to Eastern Europe. It does not show that they came from Eastern Europe to Bactria. Because then how will they transmit the name of the Bactrian camel to the Finno-Ugrians? By telegram and letter, mail. So the very word that they are showing which is the name for the Bactrian camel, shows that it was a migration from east to west. Indo-Iranians went through Central Asia to Eastern Europe, a group, and they transmitted all, all their words were borrowed by the Finno-Ugric people. And in fact, Lubotsky, who is also a very eminent linguist, now he also says, another problem is how to account for Indo-Iranian isolates, which have been borrowed into Uralic, which most probably was acquired by the Indo-Iranians in Central Asia. So if the Indo-Iranians are supposed to have borrowed them in Central Asia, how could those words reach the Finno-Ugric people at a time when Indo-Iranians are not supposed to have left Eastern Europe and come to Central Asia as yet? So what these words shows, it proves the migration was from East to West and that the homeland was in India. And that the okay. migrants moved through Central Asia to 
Eastern Europe. So the Uralic evidence is the strongest. All right. So, sir, we'll uh, we'll uh, pause uh, today's uh, presentation on this point. I will ask you now a few questions that were asked by the people who are watching this now. Yeah. So, so first was uh, a question was if the Hittites were Mongolite uh, as a Mongolite, as you have uh, mentioned there uh, in those two particular quotations. Then shouldn't uh, shouldn't uh, the evidence be clear when we analyze the DNA of Anatolians? Shouldn't we be able to see East Asian genes in them in that case? That the genetists should answer because you see the depictions are very clearly of Mongoloid people's flat noses. Even they describe the skin color and the pigtails. And um, certainly uh, there there are uh, the depictions on the Egyptian and West Asian moments monuments are of East Asians and they are supposed to be the Hittites. That is the evidence. Now, I don't know who has uncovered Hittite skeletons and analyzed their DNA. If anyone has, I would be interested in knowing what they found in that. Okay. I'll be asking the questions of the viewers first. Then uh, if I have some time, I have a few doubts of myself, but I'll first yeah. cover the people who have asked the questions. So... Somebody has asked, as per the Indo-European family tree, Sinhalese and Marathi evolved from Maharashtri Prakrit. How does one reconcile this with Sinhalese still in stage 2 and Marathi in stage 4? Then, uh, then the, they, those people should explain how Vatura came from Maharashtri Prakrit. Does it have that word? Or any of these systems? Does it? Uh, I don't know who has derived this from Maharashtri Prakrit and how. It's not from Maharashtri Prakrit. It is from the Northwest. It's a completely right. different, it shows very archaic features. Marathi is a very different thing altogether. All right. Okay. So now, sir, I'll ask you a few doubts of mine. So I'm going to start with the first point is the Uttara Kuru and Uttara Madra one. Now, I know you have already made a clear case that uh, you have shared it not as a clinching evidence, but I still have to ask this question because I have this doubt. Don't you mm -hmm. feel that we could run into those classical cases of a correlation uh, uh, causation issue in such a case of the Uttar Kuru? Now, now I, I'm willing to concede that uh, uh, there is only one scriptural evidence there and that is found in Indian scripture. So I will give that to you. I'm not, I'm not going to deny that, but still. Don't you see we may run into a correlation causation problem there? I don't know in what sense because see, I, as I said, Uttara Kuru and Uttara Madra I have identified with the uh, Tokharians and the Hittites. But uh, as I pointed out, I have no clear reason for saying that the Uttara Madras were the Hittites except, you know, as an analogy. But in the case of Tokharians, yes, because they are exactly in the same area where the Tokharian documents have been found. It covers the same area. That is the area which is described in the ancient texts as the Uttarakuru area. That is the area where the Tokharian documents have been found. And linguistically, as I told you, the word clearly has been derived from the self-appellation of the Tokharian people. Now, so there no, are people so now yeah, who raise doubt no, no, saying so that maybe Tokharian people, really? that language is wrongly called Tokharian and all. Well, now each time when it goes against them if they start revising their own uh, earlier uh, conclusions. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I can't do anything. But this is it. See, 
no, so, the... so what I meant to say, let me clarify my question a little bit more. What I meant to say was that sometimes um, we we tend to find patterns where there are none. Uh, I mean, I'm, uh, my, my job is to play the devil's advocate and ask you those questions. Yeah. So could we, could we be in a case where we are just finding patterns where it might just be a coincidence? Well, okay, but then there are three coincidences. See, first is the ancient texts, the, the Puranas and all describe the uh, Uttarakuru as living in a certain area, more or less, um, um, uh, I don't know if it's Uzbekistan or what, I mentioned it because I get confused with the names of these Central Asian uh, republics which have become recently independent, but it's the one in the east. So they have located the um, Uttarakurus in that area. That is also the area around which the Tokharian documents have been found. And that is also the, the names also coincide uh, and uh, fit in with what Henning calls the skeleton sounds of the name. Now, if you, any, if not you, I mean, anyone wants to say these are all three coincidences, okay. You can dismiss every piece of evidence which you don't like as coincidence. I can't, I can't brainwash or uh, this thing and I can only present the evidence. And everyone okay. is free to reject it, see. All right. So, sir, somebody had made this comment. I found it interesting. So, I'm making this car, reading it out here. So, you were talking about the laryngeal sounds. So, somebody yeah. made this comment. I don't know whether you agree, disagree. I just wanted you to comment on it. I found it interesting. So, I'm sharing it. Laryngeals only appear in Hittite because it occurs in the Semite zone where languages like Arabic exist, which are famous for laryngeal sounds. It may not mean that Proto-Indo-European uh, was spoken or uh, spoken originally in India needed to have it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see this now. Um, linguists have uh, been, uh, you know, studying this issue since a more, uh, long before the Hittite languages were discovered to be Indo-European and the Hittite documents were found. And according to their rules of sound, uh, this thing, which I'm not going to discuss because it's too technical. I myself don't know half of it. And whatever half I know, I will not be able to convey it to the listeners. But according to the rules of linguistic change, they find that certain changes take place in certain branches, which can be explained only if you assume that a, there were some laryngeal sounds in between, which caused a change in the neighboring sounds. Now, this theory has been there long before Hittite was discovered. So it's not that they discovered Hittite and then they made up this theory. It, this theory was there from before. And in fact, it was the discovery of Hittite documents which confirmed this laryngeal theory. Now, because in the Hittite documents, you find these laryngeals and you find them in the very same places in the words, in so many examples where they are compared with other Indo-European languages, in the very same positions in the words where they were expected to be as were their analysis before Hittite was discovered. Again, coincidence. Now, whether it is uh, our people uh, insisting on coincidences or are they, them insisting on coincidences, See, coincidences are coincidences. But this is, you're asking for too much if you say that such a coincidence could take place. So actually there are people like, you know, S.S. Mishra, who was the professor, uh, head of the Department of Linguistics in Banaras Hindi University and who wrote plenty of books on these issues, uh, uh, trying to contest the linguistic arguments of the Aryan invasion theory. Now, he, is, he has, for example, contested his laryngeal theory and written in great detail about it. However, he has not really been able to uh, contest uh, the actual arguments. 
and the main thing is you know that those arguments were not made up after discovering the hittite document the hittite documents are a separate issue and the theory laringeal theory which existed before is a separate issue and it's a big coincidence if the two happen to coincide all right so now can, one last don't like it can dismiss it as a coincidence but there's a because see if you one dismiss last... it then, yeah no no sir please complete then i'll ask my question no no what i'm saying is that i would be happy to dismiss anything which sounds as if it uh, is not uh, favorable to our theory but actually this is not either favorable or unfavorable to our theory and uh, as i will be talking in the next section next time people you know object to many linguistic things not because they find them uh, incorrect but because it goes against their pet theory that vedic sanskrit is the oldest type of indo european language and anything which seems to suggest that any other thing could be found in any other indo european languages is older than vedic sanskrit they don't like it now this is a prejudice which i cannot answer it is a if you don't like it you don't like it but there are things which we don't like which we have to accept vedic sanskrit mm -hmm. is not the original language it is not the closest also to the original language except in ways which i will be telling next time so there are different things in different languages mm -hmm. so you cannot Now, uh, yeah okay that, yeah that's so all. i have one more question sir so when it comes to this distribution of numbers now here's my query now the, the problem with the proto indo european vocabulary even you know as i um look into the proto indo european uh, words uh, you know whether it's david anthony's book or whether it was asya palsweg or any other person who has you know divulged into this uh, uh, i don't know how which word to use the hypothetical proto indo european vocabulary uh, with words which are assumed by the basis of see they developed the language they went backwards they found the they yeah. first i say this with full responsibility uh, as a skeptic uh, yeah. they first decided the probable homeland they found the body parts and the animal bones and everything and the flora and fauna in that homeland and then then they are like okay yahan pe ye mila hai to ye vocabulary mein ye word hoga yahan pe ye mila hai to ye vocabulary mein ye shabd hoga now my problem is that when we were getting into this kind of a thing and then you are placing a number based analysis did you ever try to maybe look into how the proto indo european language had any kind of numeric system or or you think that is just too far fetched and we should not waste our time on something like that. i was just genuinely curious to ask you yeah. that question see even uh, let alone proto indo european even in respect of hittite we have only the first five or six numbers nothing beyond that in respect of tokharian we have the numbers 1 to 10 and then we have 11 and 20 and um, maybe one or two other numbers so again neither hittite nor tokharian can be used in the reconstruction of proto indo european but the fact is that all the other 10 branches which have numbers they show this second stage third stage fourth stage distribution which proves the indian homeland theory so it really does not matter what was the proto indo european or hittite system it could have been stage 1 it could have been stage 2 because we know tokharian sanskrit and uh, spoken sinhalese are stage 2 we don't know and it makes no difference definitely it could not have been stage 3 or 4 that much is pure logic with however you reconstruct it you cannot reconstruct it into stage 3 or stage 4 stage 
because the oldest known Tokharian and Sanskrit are in stage two. So it makes no difference, you know, when something does not make any difference, it's senseless to argue about it, whether it is, you know, this, uh, anyway, that is the subject of the next stuff. Yeah. All right. Okay. So I guess uh, my questions are then uh, done, sir. So before we wrap today's discussion up, do you have any final comments to make on today's section or today's points that do you want to make any closing comments? Yeah. See, when, uh, I all the data and uh, evidence that I have is absolute. But the thing is, you know, I may be falling short in expressing it properly or explaining it properly. So it is possible that there may be some things which I have not been able to put across correctly. But I think if anyone examines the evidence that I have put across and ignores what I'm saying when I'm talking, you know, go through the actual article. For example, go through the article, uh, my blogspot article, the um, India's unique place in the world of numbers and numerals. And you see what I have given there. It is in great detail. You check Hindi, Marathi and Gujarati. Then you form the... Uh, you know, stems for your own language, whether it is Punjabi, Bengali, Odia or whatever. And you will see what I mean. That an Indo-Aryan cannot study another Indo-Aryan language other than his own very easily. He'll be able to study Dravidian numbers. He'll be able to study numbers in other foreign languages also more easily rather than in another Indo-Aryan language because it is in stage four, which is unnecessarily complicated. And all the other languages fall in stage two and stage three. It's very systematic. So... Um, well. All right, so so we'll uh, wrap today's up, uh, discussion over here. We will be back next Wednesday with the final part three of the presentation, which will basically wrap up the entire uh, case that Shrikanji has to make. Shrikan sir, thanks a lot for coming and looking forward to the next week now. Yeah, and thank you for uh, calling me, not only calling me, but for, you know, uh, give me uh, latitude to express myself in the way always, which you may not always agree with. It, so. the, the, the podcast is not about you and I agreeing, sir. The podcast is about you putting your points. I don't have to agree yeah. with you and you have always been kind enough. And, and it's actually, I've, I've said it many times before, but people think that I agree 100% with you. They don't know how many disagreements we have and how many exchanges we have on the email. But I make sure that when the podcast comes, it is issues, all about I you. Not on these. <laughs> 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 all right we'll wrap up today's discussion guys as always uh, uh the all the links to the blog spot uh, of shrikant telagiri are there in the description of the podcast you can go there and click on them and you can uh, look at all the relevant topics uh, that have been discovered especially today we covered the numbers bit now there is a detailed blog uh, i mean it runs into i think 45 odd pages or something you can read it in detail and you will understand it even better if you want to the link is there in the description of the podcast i'll wrap it up for the day now if you like the video please subscribe to the channel leave a comment share it with others i think this is a very important discussion and if we are able to have discussions about whether it's Aryan invasion or Aryan migration or out of india with an open mind i think it will lead to a lot of better discourse so I'll end today. Please, please support the podcast. You can become a member on YouTube or subscribe on Patreon. You can buy the podcast merch or send your donations directly via UPI. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, take care. Namaste. Goodbye.